This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 383rd episode, we have a ton of news, including an update on Spinosaur aquatic adaptations, a whole bunch of bird-like dinosaur discoveries, and we finally found out where Stan the T-Rex ended up. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Raphus. But before we get into all of that, we want to quickly thank some of our patrons. And this week we have three new patrons to thank. So thank you very much to Brett, as well as Kentrosaurus, and Elias. And rounding out our shoutouts, we've got Kyle, Randy and Squim, Bruce, Matthew, Jackson Crawford, DC Cassandra, and Burnsosaurus. Awesome. Thank you so much to everybody, those who recently joined and those who've been with us. Your support means a lot. Jumping into the news, we're going to kick it off with our Spinosaurus paper, because Spinosaurus waits for no dino. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, it's always one of the most interesting ones, the things people are most interested in. Oh, yes, so and it gotta... was very big news. Yes. So uh, this new paper was published in Nature and written by Matteo Fabri and about 50 other co-authors. There 50, really? Not that many. I don't know, like maybe 20, mm. but a lot of co-authors. The reason there are so many co-authors is because they wanted a big data set to compare lots of different dinosaur bone densities, and it helps to have a lot of people helping with that. They also wanted to look at hundreds of specimens, which means you need a lot of researchers involved and a lot of research collections involved. They ended up with 380 specimens, including dinosaurs, birds, and close relatives like crocodilians. As usual for papers like this, most of the bones came from non-dinosaurs because we tend to have a lot more of those available and we have better samples from living animals, obviously. But about 50 of them are from dinosaurs and that is a lot of destructive sampling yeah. because they had to do histology on these bones in order to cut through them and look at the cross-section of the bones to see the bone densities. Oh, but you learn a lot from it. You do. And there were quite a few fossils that had been sectioned before, so they didn't have they could reuse some of the histological sections. Yeah. There were also a few they didn't have to cut because they were already broken, so they could sort of just look at the bone as it was without having to slice it. The lead author, Fabri, pointed out that it's a good example of how you can get a lot of scientifically valuable information from imperfect bones as well. For example, you can cut them in half and see how solid they are whether or not it's a really complete, pretty big bone. So the first, maybe most important news 
for dinosaur fans, is that they confirmed earlier studies that showed Spinosaurus had unusually dense bones. So this isn't another one of those 180 papers where it upends everything we've previously thought and we have to redraw all of our Spinosaurus information and all that kind of stuff because, first of all, they're looking at bones. So the internal structure of a bone isn't going to change the way you draw a Spinosaurus no matter what because it's the inside of a bone. But in this case, it aligns with previous research. And Nizar Ibrahim tweeted when this came out, Spinosaurus is back where it belongs because the dense bones allowed it to hunt underwater. Oh, I see. So for those who were saying that it wasn't actually in the water and it was waiting, it's more of a swimmer, Mm -hmm. potentially. In general, they found that Spinosaurus had similar bone density to modern semi-aquatic animals like hippos. I think they're actually looking at the data more dense than animals that dive really deep. Mm -hmm. But the most surprising thing is that the results were different with other Spinosaurids. So based on the femora, Baryonyx had bones that were almost as dense as Spinosaurus, but Suchomimus had bones that were much less dense. On a plot of bone compactness versus femur diameter, it was basically the same as Tyrannosaurus. Suchomimus was basically the same as Tyrannosaurus. Interesting. Yeah, it was slightly more dense than an average terrestrial amniote. I mean, both of them were. But on the other hand, Baryonyx is slightly more dense than the average diving amniote, which is obviously much more dense than the average terrestrial amniote. And then Spinosaurus was even further more dense than Baryonyx. So from least dense to most dense, it goes Suchomimus, then there's a big gap, Baryonyx, and then a pretty small gap before you get to Spinosaurus. Spinosaurus and Baryonyx both also had ribs that they were able to thin section, and they saw that they were also both more dense than a typical aquatic amniote. Hmm. So both the femur and the rib of Spinosaurus and Baryonyx were very dense. Unfortunately, we don't have a Suchomimus rib to compare, so we can't see where that one falls out. So I guess there's a slight chance that the femur is unusually not dense, but the rest of its body is. But considering that the bones were in close agreement for Spinosaurus and Baryonyx, that would be pretty unlikely. I think it's also kind of funny because Suchomimus roughly translates to crocodile mimic. (laughs) And it's sort of the least (laughs) crocodile-like in terms of aquatic behavior of Mm -hmm. these. But Baryonyx means heavy claw, which is pretty fitting because it's known for having heavy bones now. Although it might be more fitting if it was named something like Oceanix, which would be heavy bone rather than just heavy claw. Maybe that'll be a future name of a dinosaur genus. The relationship of the different Spinosaurids with heavy bones is also pretty surprising. Spinosaurus and Baryonyx have the more dense bones compared to Suchomimus. However, Baryonyx and Suchomimus have consistently been considered sister taxa in Baryonychinae in several analyses basically over the last decade. Oh, so some interesting overlaps here. Yeah, so the question is, did Baryonyx independently evolve more dense bones, or did Suchomimus revert to an ancestral state of a less dense bone condition from a more dense ancestor? Both of those are possible. Alternatively, it could be that all these cladograms are wrong, and there's some ghost lineage, and maybe Baryonyx and Suchomimus don't belong in the same group together after all. It's, it sort of brings up a lot of questions, mostly with Suchomimus, 
because that's sort of the odd one out in this one. But Sukamimus isn't the household name that Spinosaurus is. So people aren't like, oh, no, Sukamimus is totally different than we thought it was. Right. So at least there's that. It's not upending a favorite dinosaur. No matter what, though, by the early Cretaceous, Baryonyx had dense bones and was likely semi-aquatic or maybe even on the more aquatic side of semi-aquatic because Baryonyx is the earliest of those three. It's roughly 120 to 130 million years ago, whereas Spinosaurus was like 20 to 30 million years after that. So it's not just the more advanced Spinosaurus with another tens of millions of years to evolve that got those dense bones. It was happening even in the earlier Spinosaurids. Hmm. So a lot more evidence on this semi-aquaticness of Spinosaurs. Yes. They also quantified the density of other dinosaurs with dense bones to see how likely they were to be subaqueous foragers. They looked at Radivates, Gallimimus, Megalosaurus, Eustreptospondylus, Tenontosaurus, and Hulskoraptor, and all of those were recovered as not subaqueous foragers. What? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised about Hulskoraptor because that yeah. one's often shown as being pretty aquatic. Being penguin-like. Yeah, so not so much. By not being subaqueous foragers, they mean that they don't hunt or collect food while fully submerged. That's the distinction there. So they're being more specific than semi-aquatic, which obviously has a really wide spectrum. And in order to be a subaqueous forager, that means you have to do more than just waiting. Okay. So they're basically saying that Spinosaurus had to swim into the water in order to catch food, not just wade and pluck it out like a heron. Right. Which does seem more reasonable given its huge, weird body that doesn't seem great for swimming. <laughs> but I guess when you're looking at the bones, it lines up better with its swimming. It's interesting. It is. The researchers, to sort of square that circle of why it looks so weird and not like a swimmer, but has these bones that clearly show that it probably spent a lot of its time in the water and probably was hunting in the water. The researchers point out that evolutionarily, usually animals develop denser bones prior to the other aquatic adaptations like streamlined bodies. So that would mean that Spinosaurus and Baryonyx likely spent a lot of time in the water, including that subaqueous foraging behavior, but they were sort of early in the lineage and they hadn't started to evolve, you know, streamlined bodies and maybe bigger tails or flippers and all that kind of stuff. In the paper, they reference hippos multiple times. <laughs> and I have to give a shout out to Cosmic Parasaur for calling that on our Discord. Basically, hippos don't have very many aquatic adaptations. When you look at a hippo, you don't think, oh yeah, that thing can swim. It probably spends all its time in the water. They just look like you know, a cow, basically, right. or they a rhino or something. And they don't look nearly as agile as they are. Yes, it's super weird. And it turns out they can't even swim. Oh. <laughs> At least not in like a very swimming type way. Okay. Because I've definitely seen a hippo submerged. Yes, they can submerge and they can move underwater. They can stay underwater for long periods of time. But I watched a bunch of videos of hippos, quote unquote, swimming. Mm -hmm. And some of them specifically say like, Hippos don't really swim. <laughs> what they do is they have really dense bones, so it holds them down basically to the riverbed, and then they just kick off the riverbed. So it's more or less like they're walking underwater with like a weight belt on, hmm. as a person could do. So even with their dense bones, they're pretty buoyant, 
And it looks a lot like astronauts moonwalking to me. <laughs> that sort of like awkward, you know, you kind of skip along because you're airborne so much. Yeah. But in reality, they're going pretty quickly. They don't go super fast. They're actually fairly slow for something that spends a lot of time in water. They're not hunting, though. So they're not the best analogy in that way because hippos are herbivores. They might, I mean, all herbivores we talk about occasionally mm -hmm. eat meat, but. Sure. And just because they're herbivores doesn't mean they're not aggressive. Yes. Oh, my. Yeah. Hippos are crazy aggressive. But the main point there is they spend a ton of time in the water. They eat a lot of food in the water. They get around just fine in the water. And they have body types, which you would never assume is an aquatic animal other than the dense bones. Mm -hmm. So it's early in that sort of evolution. Based on that, we could say that Spinosaurus and Baryonyx probably spent a lot of time in the water getting their food, but Suchomimus wouldn't have spent really much or maybe even any time hunting underwater. And it's hard to say why Suchomimus didn't when these other Spinosaurus that look so similar and in the case of Baryonyx are probably closely related did spend so much time underwater. It must be because of some different selective pressure in the different ecosystem that they lived in because they didn't live right alongside Baryonyx. They lived in a different place at a different time. So it's possible that maybe there were less rivers and or lakes around for Suchomimus to hunt in and therefore it never evolved these denser bones or it switched back to the less dense bones. And there's a lot of cool pictures of the bones, like the cross sections mm -hmm. and the charts and stuff like that. But it's in nature, so it's behind a paywall. Fortunately, Riley Black has a great write-up for Smithsonian Magazine, and there are also more pictures that are shared on a fizz.org article. Yeah, it's a big story, so lots of people are sharing things. And on a tangential note, Nizar also shared another thing on Twitter about a sneak peek for meeting the real Spinosaurus. It's in a big Eight exhibition in Hong Kong. It says it's coming out 2022. I don't have too many details, but it's going to be the world's most accurate Spinosaurus skeletal mount. Oh, cool. So new display of a Spinosaurus. Mm -hmm. I assume that means that it's probably going to have the new tail. That's what it looks like in the picture. Looks really cool. So yeah, I wonder if this is uh, what he was hinting at the last time we talked to him or if there's even more stuff in the works. He was a co-author on this, although he was the last of the long list of authors. So I think he might be, I don't think he was super involved with this research. Mm. He's probably more involved with something else. Something's coming. Yeah. All right, now that we've talked about the Spinosaurs, we can get into the birds. Good or bird-like things, not yes. necessarily actual birds. Oh, true. So the first one is about Borogovia. It's a bird-like dinosaur from the Upper Cretaceous of Mongolia. And the authors Andrea Cow and Daniel Mazia, this was published in Pure J, reanalyzed Borgovia and did a phylogenetic analysis. And they found Borgovia to be a valid taxon and supported it being classified as Troodontidae. Interesting. So it's bird-like, but it's a Troodontid. Yeah, Troodontids are fairly bird-like. I don't know if I'd call them bird-like per se. I mean, I guess kind of. Yeah. Because they're dromaeosaurs, so they're sort of like that. Well, Borogovia, it was a small theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia in the Nemect Formation. The fossils were first found in the 1971 Polish-Mongolian Paleontological Expedition. 
And then it was named in 1971 by Osmolska. And it was named after Lewis Carroll's Borogoves from the poem Jabberwocky. Oh, man. That poem gets cited a lot. Yeah. It was named based on a fragmentary skeleton with only part of the hind limbs, two lower legs. And it's estimated to be about six feet or two meters long and weigh 45 pounds or 20 kilograms. That's decent size for a troodontid. And also, especially for a bird-like troodontid. (laughs) That's true. So it probably had a long tail and S-curved neck, and it probably had feathers. What's interesting is it had troodontid and other manoraptorin features. Uh, It had this narrow third toe. Like its second toe, it had this short, relatively flat claw that couldn't be hyperextended. So instead, that second toe may have helped with weight bearing. This is called the falciporin condition. So it didn't have a sickle-like claw. Oh, twist. Mm Mm-hmm. And other dinosaurs that have this type of toe include paravians like Balor and Rahanavis, as well as Fuqui Venator, and some anantiornithines and some living birds like cassowaries, you know, cassowaries. So it could be a trait that was gained and lost in multiple lineages. Interesting. Yeah, I guess cassowary does have that really long, straight claw, and that's sort of unfortunate in terms of comparing it to freaky raptors because it's still so creepy so straight it still has a crazy looking foot yeah it's got a huge claw but it is it's flat rather than curved true so the next one we'll talk about is a new enantiornithine musavavis amabilis this was described by shuri wong and others and published in the journal paleontology now in antiornithines are a group of extinct avialans. They went extinct at the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary. Over 50 genera have been named, and enantiornithine fossils have been found on all continents except for Antarctica. And many of them have been found in the Jihol biota in China, and we've talked about a bunch of these. I didn't realize they were on every continent except Antarctica. I just think they're all in China. Yeah, that's... (laughs) Until I read this paper, that was my thought too, but probably because the ones we've covered all were found in China. That's where the new ones are being found, I guess. Yeah. So this one, Musivavis, lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Liaoning, China. And it looked very bird-like, but it had a pretty long neck and tail. The holotype's nearly complete. It's an articulated skeleton in a single slab. And this specimen probably a subadult based on histology so it may have gotten even bigger as an adult maybe that's why it had such weird proportions it's going through its awkward the awkward <laughs> phase <laughs> <laughs> the genus name mosaevis means mosaic bird and the species name means lovely or beautiful and it refers to quote the exquisite preservation of the holotype some of the features include that it had robust subconical teeth so They were shaped somewhat like a cone, a robust second pedal digit, the second toe, a sternum, that bone in the middle of the chest, being nearly equal in length and width. Oh, wow. That's wide. (laughs) Yeah. And it had this mosaic morphology because those first two features are similar to bohyornithids, but it had other features similar to other types of enantiornithines, such as having, quote, an unspecialized third pedal Ungulal phalanx, end quote. The third toe claw basically is not that long. 
So they found Musivavis to be a bohyornithid, which is one of the larger types of enantiornithines. It is smaller than other known bohyornithids based on the ratio of the humerus length, the ratio of 0.6, compared to other bohyornithids and bohyornithid-like animals such as Gechenia, which had a ratio ranges from 0.58 to 0.8. So yeah, new and antiornithine, a mosaic type one. Hmm. Then we've got another newly described enantiornithine, Bravirostruavis macrohyoidus. This was described by Zhuhang Li and others and published in the Journal of Anatomy. And that name means, quote, bird with a short snout and big tongue. There were a lot of headlines around having this big tongue a few weeks ago, so maybe you've seen this. Having this funny combination with a short snout. It's, you'd think like if you have a big tongue, you need a big head for it. But... Keep that tongue in? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it lived in the early Cretaceous in what is Liaoning, China. The holotype, based on the photos, it looked like it was well-preserved and it's in a slab. They found a well-preserved skull. And like I said, it had the short beak. It had small peg-shaped teeth and it had long tongue bones. So they're thinking it could probably stick its tongue out. Mm. And maybe it used its tongue to get insects out of bark and wood like woodpeckers do today. Or it could have eaten pollen or nectar like hummingbirds. Hmm. Or humming bats. Or humming bats, yeah. <laughs> oh, so these modern birds the, with the long tongues, though, they have even longer tongue bones than Bravirostruvavis. And the link between getting food using a tongue may have been a factor in evolving long tongues in early birds. Hmm. Makes sense that it would evolve for a purpose and not just to be able to stick it out for fun. Yeah. Yeah. Food is definitely a very strong pressure for anything. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's food or beaks or whatever. I guess that almost in a weird way, because I was saying having a longer snout seems like what you would want if you have a long tongue. But I guess if you're trying to stick your tongue into something, you if you reduce the length of your face... That's like bonus tongue length <laughs> in another way, you know, mm -hmm. because you can either there's two ways to get your tongue farther away from your face. Either you move your face back or you move your tongue forward, evolutionarily speaking. <laughs> so I guess they did both. Why not both? <laughs> there was also a well, near early Cretaceous bird recently described by Ismar D'Souza Carvajal and others. This was published in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. It's named Avis mater. It lived in what is now Brazil, found in the Crato Formation. And its genus name comes from Cariri and refers to the Cariri people of northeastern Brazil. The species name means mother in Latin, and that refers to it being the oldest known ornithuromorph from South America. That's cool. Yeah. It's kind of like a mother bird. <laughs> <laughs> They described a partial right isolated foot and at least 10 contour feathers that were preserved in close association with the foot bones. So they think that those feathers probably belong to the specimen. They were downy feathers and they were probably dark brownish in color. Okay. Yeah. The contour feathers are the ones that are sometimes called the body feathers too mm -hmm. on birds. They don't have anything to do with flight and they just sort of 
stick around the rest of the body, not the wings. Yeah. And this holotype is also in a slab and an encounter slab. That seems to usually be the way it is when you have feathers preserved. It needs to be sort of like preserving a flower in a book. Yeah. <laughs> to get pressed into those really fine, silty things. Also, the more bird-like dinosaurs seem to be in slabs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you you need the really fine sediment for their fine, fragile bones, I think. Mm-hmm. They described it as a sparrow-sized bird, and it had enough unique features in the foot bones, the metatarsals, and the toes. It had a simple hypotarsis, as this bony structure on the proximal end of the long bone in the lower leg, and other features that were different from most early Cretaceous ornithuromorphs. The authors were thinking it was probably a terrestrial animal as opposed to relatives that were semi-aquatic. It also had coarse feet and a claw on the second toe that was curved and proportionately large compared to other ornithuromorphs that had slender feet and toes. So it's part of the group Ornithomorpha, which is a group of animals under Euronithes, which includes animals closer to birds than enantiornithines. And it's one of the oldest known members of Ornithuromorpha. The feet of Carrera avis had some similarities to living flightless ratites. That includes ostriches, cassowaries, and emus. Interesting. Yeah, we don't talk about Ornithuromorpha very often. I think they're a little bit close to the bird side of things yep. compared to what we usually talk about. I usually draw the line at, you know, enantiornithines. And even then, we don't usually cover them that thoroughly. No, but we're making an exception this episode. It'll make sense later. Yep. <laughs> And we'll get back with more bird-like dinosaurs as well as that detail about where Stan ended up. But first, we're going to take a quick sponsor break. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, world-class language learning for the world's best moms. It's almost Mother's Day after all. We're going to continue our story from last time about our trip to the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. Yeah, we definitely recommend the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. They have a really cool dinosaur museum featuring all the highlights like Deinonychus, T-Rex, Triceratops. So we had a really great time. And then we decided to take the train back and we had some more aha moments with our language learning journey. 
Yeah, we had to read some maps to navigate home. And of course, a lot of the things are translated into English, but not everything is translated. So it helps a lot if you know some of the local language. It's also very nice to be able to understand announcements when you're on public transportation. Yes, because things can change sometimes. And as a bonus, we were on the train at the time when everyone was coming home from work. So it got to practice even more by listening in on conversations. Not that I was trying, but we were elbow to elbow with people. So it was hard not to hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there wasn't anything too juicy. Mostly people talking about what they're going to have for dinner. But a lot of the early phrases I learned in Chinese had to do with food. So I felt pretty good about what I could understand. And Rosetta Stone can help you have your own proud moments. Yes, and the lessons are short, so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And for a limited time, you can get all of Rosetta Stone's 25 language courses for just $179, which is a huge discount off of the usual $399. And you can do that at rosettastone.com dino. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. We've got one more ornithuromorph paper to cover. This was written by Jingmei O'Connor and others and published in the Journal of Systematics and Evolution. And in this paper, the authors looked at a bunch of avian skulls. They described six fossils out of over a hundred specimens that have been found over the past two decades in China, and they named two new species of ornithuromorphs, Mimanivis ductrix and Brevidentivis jongai. These fossils were from the early Cretaceous in what is now Gansu, China, in the Xiago Formation. The fossil site is called Changma, and it's known for having lots of fossil birds. Now, it's hard to compare specimens because of poor preservation, and there's not too many overlapping elements to compare. The fossils were mostly skulls and necks, and they were often flattened. But they did find three different taxa within these six fossils that they described. One belongs to Gansus umensis. More than half the fossils from this site belong to Gansus. And they know this based on it having similar teeth and the tip of the upper jaw not having teeth. An indentulous premaxilla. Indentulous just means it doesn't have teeth. Another taxa is a new genera, Mimanivis ductrix, named for Miman Chang a paleontologist who was the first woman to lead the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology. And the species name means leader and refers to her being a leader. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and the last new genera is Brevidantivis jangai. The genus name means short-toothed bird, and the species name is in honor of Zheng Xing, who helped find the holotype. Now, Mimanivis did not have teeth in the lower jaw and tip of the upper jaw. It may have had teeth near the back of the upper jaw. And Brevidentivis had small peg-like teeth that were packed close together and blunt teeth in the lower jaw. It had a bone, too, in the front of the jaw where a chin would be if it had a chin. Hmm. They CT scanned the bone and they stained it with chemicals and they found a cartilage that showed that there was movement there. So it means could move that bone maybe to help it detect prey. Oh, weird. Yeah. So a, a chin bone for detecting prey? Yeah. It's so strange. <laughs> it is strange. <laughs> I love the strange ones. That's why we bring them up on this show. That was Mimanivis or the other one? That was Brevidentivis. It's a cool one, that Brevidentivis. Mm-hmm. So as promised, I'm going to reveal where Stan the T-Rex ended up, in case you haven't already seen it. <laughs> <laughs> you might have. It was also big news this last week. 
Yeah. It basically came out right after we finished recording, so we couldn't include it in the episode. But National Geographic traced down where Stan the T-Rex ended up. Real quick, in case you haven't heard, Stan the T-Rex sold in October 2020 to an anonymous buyer. National Geographic, quote, followed Stan's tracks using U.S. trade records to determine that a 5.6-ton shipment worth $31,847,500, Stan's exact sale price, was exported from New York to the United Arab Emirates in May 2021. Wow, that is some dedication to figure that out. I mean, it might be. (laughs) There probably aren't a lot of multiple-ton, multi-million dollar, tens of millions of dollar shipments going from New York places. Mm Mm-hmm. But maybe there are. I don't know. I don't know if they knew the exact weight of Stan beforehand, because that would make it a lot easier if they have, if you can look this up, I guess you can, the weights and values of shipments being transported around the world. Like knowing the sale price definitely helped. Yes, definitely. So after that, they knew that it ended up in the United Arab Emirates or UAE, but they didn't know which city specifically But eventually, Abu Dhabi's Department of Culture and Tourism confirmed that they have Stan and that they bought it and that it will be going into a new museum. Mystery solved. Yep. The Emirate of Abu Dhabi also sent a picture confirming that it has been unpacked and reassembled, although the museum is not yet built. So I guess they're just enjoying it in a warehouse somewhere or something. Yeah, I remember reading the museum won't be ready until 2025 or something. Yes. So the Natural History Museum of Abu Dhabi is scheduled to open at the end of 2025, and they just released plans for the museum the day before we're recording this episode. It's going to be about 35,000 square meters, or about 377,000 square feet, or to put it another way, 8.6 acres. It's a big museum. It is a big building. I don't know how big it is for a museum, though. The American Museum of Natural History is 2 million square feet. That's a hard one to compare to. It's, yeah. Well, there are a lot of museums that are on that scale. There's just, there are a lot of huge museums, it turns out. Although, in AMNH, only 325,000 square feet of it is exhibition space. Mm. The other more than three quarters is collection space. So depending on the ratio of exhibit to collection space, it could be one of the largest natural history museums in the world. But the plans for the museum reportedly include a teaching institute and facilities for research. I'm just not sure if that's part of that original 35,000 square meter. Or it's a separate building, maybe. Exactly. So we'll have to see how big it is. They really didn't release a lot of details on it. But The really nice thing about hearing that there's going to be a teaching institute and research facilities associated with it is it probably means, hopefully means, that Stan will be available for researchers. That's what a lot of the comments on this were about. Like, oh, good, it ended up at a museum. Hopefully that means it's still available for research, et cetera, et cetera. Nice. The plans for the museum building itself remind me of columnar basalt. Ooh. That really interesting hexagonal thing that happens with rock sometimes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not a geologist, but (laughs) it's really cool looking. It's like a bunch of hexagons packed together because, you know, hexagons are the best of gods. (laughs) But in this case, the tall geometric shapes that are simulated being stacked together are actually pentagons. Mm. So I guess these this architect thinks pentagons are the best of gods. (laughs) (laughs) 
The star attraction is definitely going to be Stan, but it will also have a piece of the Murchison meteorite, which landed in Victoria, Australia in 1969. It has silicon carbide in the rock, which is about 7 billion years old, or 2.5 billion years older than the oldest Earth rocks. It's also older than the sun, and therefore probably older than anything in the solar system. Wow. I don't know for sure about that part, but I'm but pretty it's sure. it's very old. Yes. It is the oldest dated material ever touched by human hands as oh, well. Oh, that would be cool if you could touch it. Yeah, <laughs> it would be. I don't think visitors will be able to touch it, though. Yeah. They did say they had a fragment of the meteorite. I'm not sure how many fragments there are. If they got, they probably got the biggest one if they're willing to pe- spend 30 plus million dollars on a T-Rex. They're probably willing to spend many millions of dollars on a really significant meteorite as well. Those are the only two artifacts that I found listed anywhere or really details about what will be in the collection other than just general categories of things. Although they also say there will be, quote, numerous significant artifacts. So we'll have to wait to see what those significant artifacts are. Oh, we have to wait three years. Yeah. But it is the second museum with dinosaurs in the UAE, but only the third on the Arabian Peninsula. Oh, so dinosaurs are growing over there. They are, yeah. And they're also, there's now museums popping up in North Africa as Mm -hmm. well. So it's starting to spread around more. Get get them everywhere. All the continents. Yes. (laughs) I think... (laughs) It's significant, too, for this Natural History Museum to be there because apparently there is a lot of good paleontology in UAE. It's just from like seven to eight million years ago. Mm. So the focus of this museum research-wise probably won't be dinosaurs. It'll be the, I think it's Miocene Mm -hmm. fossils that are around there. And my guess is a lot of it's probably aquatic things since they're right on the coast. And when sea levels were higher, that means they would have been underwater. But you got to have a dinosaur yeah. if you're going to have an amazing dinosaur museum. You could have researchers come in looking at Stan, too. Yes. Well, good. That's good news. It is, yeah. We had sort of given up hope that it was lost in some collection of some rich person that just wanted it in their living room or something. <laughs> but it's nice to hear that it, it's ended up somewhere where lots of people will be able to appreciate it. And not that we didn't believe The Rock, but now we know. We know he doesn't have Stan. (laughs) For sure. It's been (laughs) confirmed by third parties. Our last news item, going back to birds. In Beijing, there's a birds and dinosaurs exhibit at the Geological Museum of China. And one of our listeners from Beijing recently went and shared with us some really great photos. They braved the snow. Didn't realize it was snowing in Beijing. Yeah. Braved the snow with a bike and said it was worth it. So this museum has a lot of holotypes, or the exhibit has a lot of holotypes and original fossils, and each fossil also has paleo art associated with it. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And in the pictures, it's really pretty. There's some really bright colors. Um, These are all based on pigment analysis, too. There's also a nice Q&A section at the end of the exhibit, and it's going to be open until at least after May 1st, maybe longer. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Raphis cucolatus, otherwise known as the Dodo. <laughs> this was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord, so thank you. As we mentioned, this episode is airing awfully close to April Fool's Day, but the Dodo is technically a dinosaur. It's also why we had so many bird news items in this episode. 
Yeah, originally Sabrina was like, I'm going to do an April Fool's episode. It's going to be nothing but birds. But then we found out about Stan and we had this t- <laughs> the Spinosaurus yep. paper and we had to include those two. Yeah, kind of had to. It was too big to wait. <laughs> anyway, the dodo. Turns out there's a lot to know. It's a large flightless bird or was a large flightless bird with downy gray feathers and a white plume tail. Probably. But I will get to that. Hilaire Belloc wrote a poem about a dodo in his Bad Child's Book of Beasts from 1896 that was, quote, The dodo used to walk around and take the sun and air. The sun yet warms his native ground. The dodo is not there. The voice which used to squawk and squeak is now forever dumb. Yet may you see his bones and beak all in the museum. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice rhyming of museum. Yeah. (laughs) So the dodo went extinct around the late 1600s. There is a fair amount of debate on this. We'll get into the details later. That's why the title of this episode is The Mysterious Extinction Mm -hmm. of a Dinosaur, because (laughs) there's a lot of mystery around it. It's just, uh, yeah, was it an interesting time for the dodo to be discovered and to go extinct. Mm -hmm. Dodos were about three feet or one meters tall. They weighed about 23 to 39 pounds or 10 to 17 and a half kilograms if they were in the wild. They might have been rounder, the ones that were in captivity. Okay. So they're actually, I always thought they were bigger than that for some reason. There's plenty of birds that are quite a bit bigger than that now. Mm -hmm. Even some birds that can fly are bigger than 23 pounds. Could be the way you've seen dodos depicted. Yeah. There's a lot of drawings, paintings, and written accounts from the 1600s. There's also a lot of differences in how the dodo looks. Only some of those illustrations are based on live specimens, so the exact appearance of the dodo is unclear. And we actually don't know that much about how dodos behaved. Hmm. So people were just drawing them based on like a game of telephone? They'd like hear about a dodo and then just draw a picture of it? I think it was just up to their own interpretations, too. But they weren't using a live specimen. Yeah. Some were live specimens, some were not live specimens. Oh, like taxidermied or something? Yeah, I think so. And some might have just been based on other birds. Oh, okay. So it's often depicted with the brownish gray feathers being stout, having yellow legs, a tuft of curly feathers on the tail, a gray head, and a black, yellow, and green beak. Pretty big beak, too. Yes. Sometimes it's depicted as having a beak that was bigger than it was, probably. Mm. It had black claws and small wings and did have the large beak. Contrary to how the the poor dodo has been portrayed, they were not fat and clumsy. Oh, really? Yeah. The reason they've been depicted as fat and clumsy, it's probably based on the overfed captive dodos or the crudely stuffed ones. Mm, That makes sense. It's also possible that they had the puff feathers as part of display behavior. Okay. Other depictions, such as a painting by Ustad Mansur in 1625, which was rediscovered in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg in 1955, shows a dodo with native Indian birds, and that dodo looks slimmer and brownish, and it's possibly the most accurate depiction of a dodo. Oh, cool. I love the Hermitage Museum. I want to go there so bad. (laughs) The reason that they think this is accurate is because the other birds in the painting are accurate. And this dodo may have lived with those other birds in the Mukhal Emperor Jahangir's collection. 
There was an English traveler, Peter Mundy, who said that he saw two dodos there sometime between 1628 and 1633. That's cool. I like that it's sort of self It's a drawing with some accurate birds, and you know what those looked like, Mm -hmm. and then this dodo bird where everyone's confused about what it looked like, but if that one's accurate too, that's It probably is, yeah. And that one, the reason the dodo ended up there, I think it got sent there as a gift. Now, depictions of the dodo after 1638 seem to be based on earlier images, and there's a lot of differences in the details, so it's that's why it's so hard to know what's accurate. Hmm. Sometimes the dodo's been depicted as white, but this white dodo was probably inaccurate based on reports of the Réunion Ibis and 17th century paintings of white dodo-like birds in the 1800s by Pieter Withus and Pieter Holstein. In 1619, Willem Bontico mentioned fat, flightless birds as dodercine in his journal without mentioning their color. Dodercine? Dutch. It's a Dutch word. Interesting. The journal was published in 1646, along with an engraving of a dodo that was white and stocky. In 1987, scientists described a recently extinct species of ibis from Reunion with a relatively short beak, and they reassigned that to Threskiornis. Now, these birds are also white and black with slender beaks, and that fits the description of the Reunion solitaire bird. Oh, that's a cool one. It also is extinct. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) The weight of dodos, going back to this idea of them being fat, actually might have changed depending on the season. They could have been fatter in cold seasons and thinner in hot seasons, which also adds to the confusion. Mm Mm-hmm. Bulking up for the winter. Mm Mm-hmm. There was a 2017 histology study of dodo bones and modern Mauritian birds that suggested that dodos bred around August after storing up fat, and then the chicks grew quickly, reaching near adult size before summertime in November to February because of where the island was. And then adult dodos that had bred would molt around March and then be done by the end of July, ready to breed again. Hmm. So again, the poor dodo has been described as a strong and greedy hunter. That could be because it was being watched during the season when they were fattening up to breed. Oh, I'd never heard of them being greedy hunters before. I always see them depicted as just like goofy, waddling, dumb things. Yeah. I guess that that goes to that old idea that you have to be dumb to go extinct. Yeah, that's true. But in the dodo's case... That wasn't really why it probably went extinct. (laughs) No, definitely not. So dodos were bigger than a turkey. Male dodos may have been larger, and they might have had longer beaks than female dodos. It's possible that males lived up to age 21 and then females to age 17. Wow, that's specific. Yeah. They had feathers that were like pigeon feathers, panaceous rather than downy. And that makes sense. They're related to pigeons. And they're on an island, so they probably flew there before becoming flightless. Probably. They had blue-gray plumage, a heavy skull and beak, a more robust skull than a pigeon's. The head was wider than it was long, and the color of the head was a lighter gray than the body, probably. Its eye sockets were towards the back of the skull, and it had the long hooked beak that it may have used for defense. Yeah, his beak, I was looking at a picture of it, is pretty fierce. It's not that far off from something like uh, a hawk or something where the the top beak 
overlaps the bottom yeah. and has that big point on the bottom. You can imagine it pecking something really hard or killing a crab or small animal or something. Yeah, dodos have not had good PR. <laughs> yeah, they're, I don't think they were any slouch in terms of hunting. They're greedy hunters. <laughs> greedy hunters, yeah, well, because they had to be. Uh, I actually don't know if they were greedy. I don't think they were actually greedy. Dodos probably provided crop milk to their young, and they probably had nests on the ground. They may have only laid one egg at a time. They had four toes, three in the front and one in the back, and all their toes had thick black claws. They had also a large sternum, though it was small proportionately compared to smaller pigeons that can fly. The dodo, however, was probably a fast runner. Ah, twist. Yeah. They had muscle scars on the bones, so the wings also may have been used for display and balance. They wouldn't have been completely useless. Hmm. Yeah, definitely have much bigger wings than something like a kiwi, although maybe not quite as big as something like an ostrich, proportionally speaking. Yeah, I don't think so. The dodo probably became flightless because there weren't any predators around and there was lots of food, which happens a lot with island animals. Oh, yeah. And that whole thing about if you're really remote and they try to fly back to land, most of them can't make it. So yeah. it actually evolutionarily, you're better off being a bad flyer and not attempting it. <laughs> yeah, than adapt in other ways for the mm -hmm. island. Now, the etymology for the word dodo is not that clear. Dodos were first written about in 1598 by Dutch sailors when they arrived at the island Mauritius. There were also Portuguese sailors who were trying to land on the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, but then were blown off course from a storm and they ended up in Mauritius. <laughs> That's really funny because we were talking about how that might be how birds end up on these islands, getting blown off course <laughs> while also migrating. It's <laughs> <laughs> also how sailors end up on weird islands. Now, one of the original names for the dodo was... Wagvohel in Dutch, and I am very unfamiliar with the Dutch language, so I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> it was written, that name, in a journal in 1598 by Dutch Vice Admiral Wybrand Khan Warwick during the second Dutch expedition to Indonesia. And that name means tasteless or insipid or sickly bird. Hmm. So it was always off to a rocky start. <laughs> That almost sounds like they ate it and didn't like what it tasted like. That is exactly what happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, from the English translated version of the description, wrote, quote, Finding in this place great quantity of fowls, twice as big as swans, which they call wallstocks or wallowbirds, being very good meat, but finding an abundance of pigeons and parrots, they disdained any more to eat those great fowls, calling them wallowbirds, that is to say, loathsome or fulsome birds. So also from the voyage, there's mention that the Portuguese called these birds penguins. But the dodo, the name doesn't come from the word penguin because penguins in Portuguese were called faulty cows at the time. The dodo was also called dront, or maybe it's dronte. That means swollen in Dutch. Griffend and Kermiskans to refer to fowl flattened for the Kermis Festival in Amsterdam, which happened the day after the sailors arrived to Mauritius. A lot of those names refer to what it tasted like or when they ate it. Yes. It's pretty messed up. If you're, <laughs> I I can't they... ima <laughs> like imagine if aliens came to Earth and ate a person and we're like, we're going to call this one gamey. 
Because it tastes gamey. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of an extreme comparison, but I think food was probably on their minds. They'd probably been out to sea for a while. Yeah. It's just naming an animal for how it tastes. You don't get that all that often. <laughs> they were hungry. The name Dodo could also be related to Dodars, which means fat arse or not arse, and refers to the knot of feathers on the tail. That word was first used in 1602. Sir Thomas Herbert, an English writer, was the first one to use the word dodo in his 1634 travelogue, and he said that the Portuguese used that word when they visited Mauritius in 1507. That was pretty early. Yeah. Emmanuel Altham also used the word dodo in a letter in 1628 and said that its origin was Portuguese, but it's not clear if that was the case. There's another suggestion that dodo is sort of an onomatopoeia for how it sounded when it called out, like doo-doo. That's kind of a pleasant sound. Well, we don't actually know how it sounded because it's long extinct, but yeah. Yeah, that was before we had any way to record audio. Mm-hmm. The species name, Cocolatus, means hooded. That was first used in 1635 by Juan Eusebio Nirenberg. He called it Cygnus Cucolatus, referring to Carolus Clusius's 1605 depiction of a dodo. Carl Linnaeus wrote that the dodo was Struthio Cucolatus in the 1700s, and Matherin Jacques Brisson used the term Raphus Cucolatus in 1760. Oh, it's interesting that they stuck with the 1761 rather than the 1600s version. Yeah. In 1766, Linnaeus used the term Ditus ineptus, inept dodo, but that's been synonymized with Raphus cucolatus. Now, the Dutch word dodor means sluggard, and the Portuguese word dodu means foolish or simple. Arab vessels visited Mauritius in the Middle Ages, and Portuguese ships visited between 1507 and 1513, but neither of them settled there. There's no records of dodos from them, though the Portuguese name for Mauritius is CERN, Swan Island, and it might refer to the dodos. Then the Dutch acquired Mauritius in 1598, and when the first Dutch sailors made it to the island, like we were saying, they'd been at sea for a while. They were looking for new things to eat. A 1602 journal by Willem van West Zanen mentioned 24 to 25 dodos were hunted for food, and they were so large they had to preserve them by salting them. Yeah, 25 dodos at 25 pounds apiece. Yes. That's a lot of meat. That meat was described by some as unsavory. They preferred to eat pigeons and parrots. And some of them said that it was tough but tasted good. Some of them only wanted to eat the gizzards, and they considered that to be the best part of the dodo for eating. I know some people that like the gizzards the best out of a chicken or a turkey. Yeah. That's not me, but... (laughs) But (laughs) there are people, people, yeah. (laughs) Most descriptions of dodos were found in ship's logs and journals of the Dutch East India Company, so there's no scientific descriptions, which just further adds to our confusion of what we know about the dodo. Yeah, I mean, the 15th and 1600s, we didn't have the scientific method really well established yet, and we definitely didn't have Linnaean taxonomy or most of the ways that you describe animals formally. Yep. Or photography, or really any way to record things. (laughs) Yeah, so the dodos were doomed. There's one description from Van Warwick's 1598 journal where he wrote, quote, 
blue parrots are very numerous there, as well as other birds, among which are a kind conspicuous for their size, larger than our swans, with huge heads only half covered with skin as if clothed with a hood. These birds lack wings, in the place of which three or four blackish feathers protrude. The tail consists of a few soft and curved feathers, which are ash-colored. These we used to call Walvogel, for the reason that the longer and oftener they were cooked, the less soft and more insipid eating they became. Nevertheless, their belly and breast were of a pleasant flavor and easily masticated, end quote. <laughs> you don't see the word masticated used very often. Yeah, or chewed. Maybe it was more common in the late 1500s. <laughs> so this guy at least liked the breast meat better than the gizzards, mm -hmm. it sounds like. As long as it was cooked long enough, sounds like. No, he said if you cook it too long, then it gets bad. Oh, you're right. Never mind. Barely cooked. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the more salmonella, the better. <laughs> There's a travel journal from the Dutch ship Gelderland from 1601 to 1603 that has the only known sketches of living or recently killed dodos. It was probably drawn by Joris Jusidens Laurel and another unnamed artist, but it's unclear how many of those dodos were drawn based on living dodos and how many were based on stuffed ones. Hmm. Now, most descriptions of the dodos were brief, so we don't know too much about their behavior. There's a Dutch letter in 1631 that wrote about dodos referring to them as wealthy mayors. Quote, the mayors are superb and proud. They presented themselves with an unyielding stern face and wide open mouth, very jaunty and audacious of gait. They did not want to budge before us. Their war weapon was the mouth, with which they could bite fiercely. Their food was raw fruit. They were not dressed very well, but were rich and fat. Therefore, we brought many of them on board to the contentment of us all. <laughs> so they liked the way they tasted. Yeah, or at least they were hungry enough and there was enough meat. It's interesting. And that one they're described as herbivorous, eating fruit. Yeah. Frugivorous. But they also could have a fierce bite. Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine with that beak for sure. Yeah. There's another description by Herbert in 1634, quote, first here only and in Rodriguez is generated the dodo, which for shape and rareness may antagonize the phoenix of Arabia. Her body is round and fat, few weigh less than 50 pounds. It's reputed more for wonder than for food. And then there's a lot more descriptions about how it looked, including her eyes are small and like to diamonds, round and rowling. Her train three small plumes, short and improportional. Her legs suiting her body, her pounces sharp, her appetite strong and greedy. Stones and iron are digested, which description will better be conceived in her representation, end quote. Stones and iron are digested. I wonder if they're talking about gastroliths. Could be. It sounds like it. We're going to take a short sponsor break, but after the break, we will talk even more about the dodo, including the specimens brought to Europe. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs like Saturnalia, a small long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos, Yes, that Thanos, named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. 
plus some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive. There's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, sauge, or cheers. Join now at rosettastone.com slash dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. This episode is brought to you by Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them on a dig this summer and help advance our scientific understanding of the ancient world. This is a 16-day immersive paleontology experience in northwest Colorado. The fossilized bones that are being excavated are public, and they'll be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. And the bone bed is really cool. It's atypical for the Morrison Formation. And the current thinking is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus acting as a log jam, and then other carcasses are piling up behind it. So you imagine a river flowing until a big old Brachiosaurus blocks the whole thing and a bunch of littler dinosaurs are piling up. Yeah. Oh, man. There have been two digs scheduled. There's May 27th to June 11th and July 1st to July 16th. Also, in conjunction with the dig, there are two immersive lab techniques programs available. College credit is available for both programs for those interested, and you can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details and register online. Again, that's cncc.edu for Colorado Northwestern Community College slash D-I-N-O-D-I-G. All right, we're back. And as promised, I'll start with talking about the specimens that were brought to Europe. In the early 1600s, there were four dodos brought there. Dodos were also studied in the 1800s. One of the things that was studied was a dried dodo head. Hmm. The English writer Sir Hammond Lestrange wrote about a dodo in London, quote, About 1638, as I walked London streets, I saw the picture of a strange-looking fowl hung out upon a cloth, and myself, with one or two more in company, went in to see it. It was kept in a chamber and was a great fowl, somewhat bigger than the largest turkey cock, and so legged and footed, but stouter and thicker and more erect shaped, colored before like the breast of a young cock pheasant, and on the back of a dun or dark color. The keeper called it a dodo, and in the end of a chimney in the chamber there lay a heap of large pebble stones, whereof he gave it many in our sight, some as big as nutmegs, and the keeper told us that she eats them, conducing to digestion. And though I remember not how far the keeper was questioned therein, yet I am confident that afterwards she cast them all again, end quote. So there we go, the gastroliths. That's a gastrolith for you. Mm-hmm. Eating a stone to conduce to digestion. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what it is. As they would say in the 1600s. <laughs> 
Now, a lot of dodos were sent to Europe and Asia, but it's hard to know how many of them made it alive to their destinations. Julian Hume suggested at least 11. They're too tasty. People wanted to eat them on the way there, maybe. No, I think they just didn't survive the journey very well. This is a really long way from Mauritius. It's way down south of the equator. Mm-hmm. One of the ones that did survive, though, obviously includes the London specimen that Haman described in 1638. There are also two live specimens seen in India by Peter Mundy between 1628 and 1633-34, and there was one sent to Nagasaki, Japan in 1647. So they were still getting around quite a bit in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. They must not have been that ugly if people wanted to collect them and keep them as pets all over the place. Yeah, or they looked unique enough or something. Yeah, because the way dodos are depicted most of the time, why would anyone want that as a pet? <laughs> like It would be a ridiculous thing to keep. Yeah. And maybe they had some interesting behaviors too, or maybe people weren't used to seeing the gastroliths and how they digested. Yeah, or or just their beak, you know, mm-hmm. a pretty fierce looking beak on a fairly large animal would be interesting. There was a potential dodo egg stored in the East London Museum in South Africa, but in 2010, the museum proposed using genetic studies to see if it was a dodo egg and it might be an ostrich egg instead. Oh. In 1651, Francois Koch wrote, Quote, I have seen in Mauritius birds bigger than a swan without feathers on the body, which is covered with a black down. <laughs> Feather color is changing constantly in these descriptions. I know. That's why it's so hard to know. <laughs> the hinder part is round, the rump adorned with curled feathers as many in number as the bird is years old. In place of wings, they have feathers like these last, black and curved, without webs. They have no tongues. The beak is large. <laughs> They have no tongue. (laughs) It's a really weird claim. The only bird ever to not have a tongue. (laughs) Their legs are long, scaly, with only three toes on each foot. It has a cry like a gosling and is by no means so savory to eat as the flamingos and ducks of which we have just spoken. They only lay one egg, which is white, the size of a halfpenny roll, by the side of which they place a white stone the size of a hen's egg. They lay on grass which they collect and make their nests in the forest. If one kills the young one, a gray stone is found in the gizzard. We call them Oso de Nazare. The fat is excellent to give ease to the muscles and nerves, end quote. Now this description talks about a bird with three toes and no tongue, and that's not a dodo. Some people thought that that was a new species of dodo, Ditus nazarenus but it's possible the description was mixed in with a description of a cassowary because he also mentioned a young ostrich that was taken on the ship in 1617, and it's the only reference to a possible juvenile dodo. Hmm. Yeah, I guess looking back at that description, maybe that could be a cassowary. They're definitely black, and all the other descriptions of dodos, they talked about them being gray or white or maybe light brown. Mm -hmm. I think it's the three toes on each foot. It's very different. Yeah, that's true. But still, I mean, even cassowaries have tongues. Maybe he just didn't notice the tongue. Yeah. (laughs) Just don't know why you throw that in the mix. Weird. (laughs) Now, at different times, the dodo has been thought to be a small ostrich, a rail, an albatross, a vulture, and a ground pigeon. Well, ground pigeon is close. I mean, that could almost be a description of it. Yeah. But none of the other ones. No. 
Some people doubted that the dodo existed until the fossils were found much later, even though there was a head and a foot of a dodo at Oxford, a foot in London, and skulls in Prague and Copenhagen from dodos that had been caught and shipped alive from the island. Hugh Strickland wrote the Dodo Book in the 1840s and 50s, and that included accounts and illustrations of the dodo and depictions of the specimens that made it to Europe. And this was the foundation of the monograph The Dodo and Its Kindred, published by Strickland and Melville in 1848, where Melville described the remains. And they had permission to dissect the dodo head at Oxford and confirmed it was a giant ground pigeon instead of an ostrich, rail, albatross, or vulture. Interesting, but that's still quite a while after it went extinct, I presume. Yes. So we'll get into the dodo extinction now. The Dutch, again, they colonized Mauritius in 1644, and they brought with them cats, dogs, pigs, and sometimes monkeys. Uh-oh, they brought cats. That's the <laughs> number one killer of birds in the world. <laughs> well, it wasn't just the cats that were the problem, but the last agreed-upon sighting of a dodo was in 1662. Oh, wow, that's a long time ago. Yeah. 360 years ago? Yeah. But just because that was the last sighting doesn't mean that's when it went extinct. It did, however, go extinct within less than a century of being discovered. Oh, man. <laughs> they were probably there for hundreds of thousands of years before that. <laughs> now, this extinction, people didn't notice it at first. And some people thought that the extinction was a myth. So first you had people that didn't believe it existed at all, and then you had people who didn't believe it went extinct. Yeah, well, long after the 1600s, people thought extinction was impossible. Mm -hmm. So that's not too surprising. The dodo wasn't afraid of humans, which made it easy prey for the sailors. So it was hunted by sailors, but also the invasive species like the cats, dogs, pigs, and monkeys. <laughs> and monkeys. Yeah, and its habitat was destroyed. In the 1600s, the human population on the island was never more than 50 people, but because of the dogs, pigs, cats, rats, and crab-eating macaques... <laughs> it almost rhymed. <laughs> it did almost rhyme. They went for the dodo nests and the same food resources as the dodos. So the invasive species and the habitat destruction probably contributed more to the dodo going extinct than it being hunted by people. Yeah, it's not really along a trade route or anything, like how the Galapagos was like a nice stop mm -hmm. along the way. I think Mauritius is a little bit too far out that you'd want to stop at it for food. You stop for the dodos, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah, but I, I don't think you would because they talked about how it didn't taste very good. Oh, that's true. And they don't live that long on a ship. They're not as useful as a Galapagos tortoise. But if you wanted to see something interesting, maybe. Yeah, I suppose. Or if you get blown off course. <laughs> there were some fossils oh, found in 2005 of dodos killed by a flash flood, too. So it wasn't all invasive species that killed them. They weren't killed in 2005. They were found in 2005. Oh, yes. From a flash flood in Long the 1600s, time. I guess. Uh, 1500s. I, I think maybe even older. In 1997, Carlos Yamashita suggested that the broad-billed parrot may have needed dodos and tortoises to eat palm fruits and excrete their seeds, which would then become the parrot's food. So they could have been part of this ecosystem in that way. Hmm. Dodos may have been rare before humans came to Mauritius, but dodos did survive hundreds of years of volcanic activity and climate changes. 
So they sounds like they were fairly resilient. There is some controversy, as we mentioned, on when dodos went extinct. Again, the last widely accepted record of a dodo sighting is 1662 by Volkert Everts, who was shipwrecked. And he described birds on a small islet off Mauritius, which may have been Amber Island. He wrote, quote, These animals, on our coming up to them, stared at us and remained quiet where they stand, not knowing whether they had wings to fly away or legs to run off, and suffering us to approach them as close as we pleased. Amongst these birds were those which in India they called Dodersen, being a kind of very big goose. (laughs) (laughs) These birds are unable to fly, and instead of wings, they merely have a few small pins, yet they can run very swiftly. We drove them together into one place in such a manner that we could catch them with our hands, and when we held one of them by its leg, and that upon this it made a great noise, the others all of a sudden came running as fast as they could to its assistance, and by which they were caught and made prisoners also. Oh, the last time somebody reported them, they just caught all of them and killed them. Well, he didn't write specifically they killed them, but yeah, probably. They made them prisoners. Yeah. You only make birds a prisoner for what reason i guess you could have it as a pet yeah or you ship them off to another continent and they die along the way (laughs) (laughs) there was another sighting of a dodo in 1688 that was by isaac johans lamotius in 2003 a statistical analysis by david roberts and andrew solo estimated that dodos went extinct in 1693 and suggested that dodos were probably rare by the 1660s, since the last sighting before 1662 was 1638. So there's just like one or two, because you said they live about 20 years. So there's a couple of them around for a little bit after that, they're guessing. Yeah. Yeah. In 1868, Alfred Newton suggested the name dodo was transferred to the Red Rail after the dodo went extinct. And some descriptions after 1662 use the word dodo when they're referring to the red rail, further adding to the confusion of when dodos went extinct. (laughs) Dutch manuscripts from 1664 to 1674 also mention dodos, but they might have been talking about red rails. There's a 2020 study that suggested the dodo disappeared from predation by feral pigs in 1658 to 1664, but people didn't realize at the time that the dodos went extinct. And the settlers hadn't seen dodos before, but they'd expected to see flightless birds, so they might have accidentally referred to red rails as dodos. Yeah, that's the tricky thing with common names for animals, and when you don't have descriptions or any of these birding books (laughs) to go by, makes it a lot harder to identify birds. But even now, people often misidentify birds and don't know if some birds went extinct yet. Yeah, it's true. Now, red rails laid more eggs at a time than dodos. The eggs incubated faster and their nests were probably concealed, so they might have been less vulnerable to the pigs. Overall, though, it's unclear exactly when dodos went extinct, but they were probably extinct by 1700. People, however, didn't recognize that dodos went extinct until the 1800s. This was partly for religious reasons, since people didn't believe in extinction until Georges Cuvier, and partly because many scientists didn't think dodos ever existed, and they (laughs) thought they were a myth. It can't go extinct if it never existed. Exactly. Penny Magazine in 1833 used dodos as the first example of human-induced extinction, and dodos 
have been seen as an icon of extinction since. Yeah. Although they were very far from the first thing to go extinct. Mm -hmm. We had all sorts of large birds, even, you know, like the moa. Mm -hmm. And you've got mastodons and mammoths and all sorts of things that were hunted to extinction. Again, poor PR for the dodo. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it's hard to know exactly when it went extinct since there were the rare sightings. And maybe they existed for a while and they just weren't seen by humans. Dodos are closely related to Raphis solitaris of Reunion Island and Pezofaps solitaria of Rodriguez Island. But both of those birds went extinct in the 1700s. Ugh. (laughs) Frustrating. In 2004, Julian Penderhume and others published about Dutch diaries and the demise of the dodo, and they confirmed that dodo specimens were collected regularly for at least 26 years after 1662, which, again, is that last agreed-upon sighting. So they calculated a new extinction date. In 1674, Commander Hubert Hugo questioned Simon, who was a recaptured slave, who had seen two dodos between 1663 and 1674. There's also a note that hunters killed a dodo for Hugo in 1673. Lamotius was in charge of Mauritius after Hugo from 1677 to 1692, and he kept diaries. From 1685 to 1688, he did not get much support, so he had hunters going out daily for food. The reliability of the diaries has been questioned, and it's not included in when dodos went extinct. But his diaries talk about dodos 12 times as part of the hunter's quarry sometime between 1685 to 1688. And he last wrote about capturing a dodo on November 25th of 1688. He used the term doderson, which researchers thought was a name transferred from the dodo to the red rail. Again, that red rail looked a little different. It had a smaller, more slender beak. But Penderhume and others found it more likely that Limodius was referring to the dodo. Quote, he was a credible observer, having been instructed by the Dutch East India Company to record, among other things, the natural history of Mauritius. End quote. And he, quote, would have been well acquainted with the distinctive morphology of the dodo because of its fame in Western Europe. At least three specimens have been transported to the Netherlands, and many paintings were in existence, predominantly by Dutch artists. End quote. The Dutch were also familiar with rails and rail-like birds, and neither Hugo nor Lamodius refer to them, but earlier Dutch accounts refer to the red rails of Mauritius as field chickens. And they found no evidence, the authors found no evidence, that Lamodius or Hugo changed the name to Doderson. So in this 2020 paper, they estimated the dodo went extinct in 1693 based on records of dodo observations, and they said it's with a 90% confidence interval. Now, Lamodius stopped recording his hunts in 1688 because it's believed he became despondent. There's a diary from 1689 that hasn't been found, and Lamodius was arrested and he left the island in 1692. The French then took over Mauritius in 1710, so it's possible the dodo became extinct when the French were in charge. We just don't have any good records of that point, I suppose. Records of dodos in general were pretty sparse by then. All right, we've talked about the dodo extinction, now we'll talk about dodo bones. So only four incomplete dodo specimens were known until 1860. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. With all, especially with all the ones that ended up in Europe, you'd think someone would have kept a skeleton. 
Yeah. <laughs> we weren't thinking of them as notable for science, I guess. Huh. Some of the first dodo bones were found in 1860 by Philip Ayers, who sent them to Richard Owen. And Owen seems to have mixed them up with some Rodriguez solitaire and Pexofap's solitaria bones that were sent around the same time, so he didn't follow up with them. But then in 1863, Owen sent word to Vincent Ryan, an Anglican bishop of Mauritius, to spread the word that he was looking for dodo fossils. Word got around to George Clark, a natural historian and a master of a diocese school in Mauritius, who'd spent more than 30 years looking for dodo fossils without success. Clark got a lead from his school pupils, who saw tortoise bones being taken out of a marsh, and he, Clark, got exclusive permission to dig at the site of an estate. He wrote, quote, The men waded into the deeper, central parts of the marsh, feeling for bones, using their hands and feet, and the first discoveries were made. Harry Higginson, who was a civil engineer, was in Mauritius to help construct a new railway. And in September of 1865, he noticed some bird bones that workers were removing from the soil. So he took some of the bones to Clark, who had Owen's book on the dodo, supposedly. Although that account is a little bit murky because Owen didn't actually publish the book until a year later in 1866. Maybe he got an advanced copy? I don't <laughs> think so. I think he just got confused with the timing of everything. Anyway, they compared and they found the bones to be dodo bones. Now, Higginson claims that he was the first to find the dodo bones, but there's evidence that Clark got there first and Higginson misremembered the date that he visited Clark. Because mm. his notes were written after the fact and they didn't mention the date that he was walking around and he found the bones. And this book piece of evidence might be relevant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it did happen shortly before the completion of the railway which opened October 19th of 1865, and Clark's first letter to Owen is dated October 6th, 1865. Now, in 1865, George Clark found more than 300 dodo specimens in a swamp. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. But not many skull and wing bones. They were probably washed away or scavenged. This find led to more interest about the dodo. So when it became a household name? Not quite. <laughs> but it's starting to be of interest more. Now, Owen publicly announced the discovery, and he had a lot of lectures and public engagements before he published his description of the fossils. Clark was paid 100 pounds for 100 bones from the British Museum. Now, Richard Owen and another man, Alfred Newton, both wanted to describe the dodo skeletons, and they ended up in a rivalry. <laughs> Richard Owen does that he pretty does. often. Yep. This is the first I'm hearing of Alfred Newton, but I'm not surprised he had a rivalry with Richard Owen. <laughs> yes. So Alfred Newton became the first professor of zoology and comparative anatomy at the University of Cambridge. Edward Newton, Alfred Newton's brother, was posted to Mauritius from 1859 to 1877 as a colonial administrator, and he eventually became colonel secretary. And Edward... Newton was interested in the study of birds, so he sent some specimens to his brother from Mauritius, and Alfred asked Edward about dodo bones. Now, a lot of this story I'm getting from 2009 when J.P. Hume and others wrote about how Owen stole, quote-unquote, the dodo. Before the Suez Canal opened in 1869, 
Letters to and from Mauritius took six to seven weeks to arrive, so the timeline here is a little bit confusing. The first fossils of dodos were found in the Mer au Songe Marsh in Mauritius in 1865, and that started this race to publish about the skeleton. At the time of the dodo discoveries, there was a malaria epidemic from 1865 to 1868 that killed 48,000 people, over 13% of the population in Mauritius. So there wasn't much initial interest in Mauritius about the discovery. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, they were preoccupied. Anyway, as you mentioned, George Clark sent bones to Richard Owen, but he also sent some to Alfred Newton. And Owen intercepted the fossils that were meant for Alfred Newton, and then he published on the dodo first. So he did literally steal the bones in order to publish about it. <laughs> yes. Clark, I should mention, he mostly found larger bones since they were extracting them from the marsh with their hands and feet. Now, Edward Newton saw Clark as doing this excavating mostly for the money, and he also wanted to make money, although he was also interested in the birds and the science. There was a separate rivalry going on between Clark and another man, Higginson, and Clark implied to Owen that Higginson paid people to go at night and remove bones without authorization. Higginson had donated specimens to three museums. People did search more marshes for dodo bones since Clark had exclusive rights to that first marsh, but none were found. Anyway, Edward Newton sent bones to his brother Alfred in November of 1865, but it also seems that he sent Owen some bones and asked for any surplus bones to go to his brother Alfred. Clark also sent bones to Alfred Newton via a Captain Milius, but Richard Owen ended up keeping all the bones. What happened was Owen approached the Captain Milius after the material arrived in London, and Clark, Alfred Clark didn't know about this. On December 12th of 1865, Alfred read a letter from Clark at the Zoological Society that announced the Dodo discovery and said they would also be available at auction, and this seemed to spur Richard Owen to action. Owen ended up writing a testimonial for Alfred Newton to become the first professor of zoology and comparative anatomy at Cambridge in 1865, and he congratulated Alfred on his application. Meanwhile, Richard Owen also wrote about why he should be the only one to get the dodo bones to Newton. He wrote, quote, As soon as the Mauritian bones sent to me by Mr. Clark arrive, I will let you know, and you can see them at your leisure. Mr. C. and the Bishop will, I think, expect me to describe them and give the discoverer credit for his painstaking. You will understand their feeling possibly some disappointment were I to make these treasures over to another, as I gladly would do to you, being overfull of work. In prospect of this little additional straw, I wrote for the copy of your last labor of Didus. End quote. So his, his rationale is that people will expect him to describe them? But he doesn't really want to do it. He'd be happy not to do it. But then he like swoops in and takes all the bones. At least that's what he wrote, yeah. Meanwhile, Alfred apparently didn't know what Richard Owen was doing, and he followed George Clark's requests and scheduled the dodo bones to be sold at auction in January of 1866. But then in December of 1865, he got a letter from the captain, Milius, with news that Milius and Clark had agreed that Owen would get all the bones. Alfred Newton at this point couldn't do much since Owen had a lot of sway in his professorship application. Remember, he gave him that nice testimonial. Mm. 
His brother, Edward Newton, wrote, quote, I must say that I feel very indignant about the conduct of Owen in the case of Clark's dodos. He has shown himself to be a very mean-minded, illiberal sort, and I am very much vexed that he should have been the cause of so much annoyance to you, and I greatly fear that Owen may injure you for the professorship in a vindictive manner, end quote. Alfred Newton also had to withdraw his manuscript on the dodo that he'd submitted so that Owen could publish his monograph. Clark was also surprised, but more careful, probably because he didn't want to lose out on more financial deals. He ended up not finding any more dodo bones, though, especially after the owner of the estate where he had exclusive rights died and the new owner no longer let him look for bones. Now, Alfred Newton and Richard Owen bickered for five years after this. They had a rivalry now. Owen ended up describing the dodo bones in 1866, but based the reconstruction of the dodo on a painting that made them look too squat and obese, the way the dodo is still often depicted. He did correct it in 1869 after he got more bones and he did make the dodo more upright. Around 1900, Louis-Étienne Thoreau, an amateur naturalist and barber, found two dodo specimens in a few locations, and that included the first articulated specimen and the only remains of a juvenile specimen. Nice. That juvenile, though, it's now lost. It's a, it was a tarso metatarsus. Oh, okay. Not a very complete one. But the articulated one, that's really cool. Yeah. And it was scanned and studied in 2016. In 2015, the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology published an atlas on the dodo based on two near-complete dodo skeletons. It took them five years of work, too. They looked at the Thoreau skeletons, and they also described new bones, like kneecaps, ankle, and wrist bones. In 2005, at least 17 more dodos were found in various stages of maturity. No juveniles, though. And that was of dodos trying to get to water during a severe drought around 4,200 years ago. They were found in a swamp. In 2006, too, a complete dodo skeleton was found in a lava cave. So there's lots of dodo bones now. There's more now than when they were alive and they <laughs> just kept a dodo. <laughs> well, when you put it that way. Now, as you mentioned before, the dodo's pretty closely related to the pigeon. In 2014, Tim Hopink and others published on the relationship between the spotted green pigeon and the dodo. And the dodo, as well as the Rodriguez solitaire, are part of the subfamily Raffinae, which includes very diverse pigeon species. A genetic analysis found the Nicobar pigeon, which is from Southeast Asia, is their closest living relative. Ah, uh, that's the one I was thinking of. That's pretty and green and all that. Yeah. And then the spotted green pigeon was described in 1783, and that one's similar to the Nicobar pigeon. For a while, though, the spotted green pigeon was thought to be an abnormal form of the Nicobar pigeon. The ancestors of all these birds was probably able to fly, but was semi-terrestrial and partial to islands. There may be a stepping stone hypothesis where the ancestor of the dodo, quote, traveled from island to island, starting somewhere in Southeast Asia or India and finishing in Mauritius and Rodriguez. So they're thinking, you know, the dodo got there because its ancestors was island hopping, the stepping stone hypothesis, and that's how it ended up so far away from its other relatives. They're saying it didn't make it all the way to Mauritius in one shot. 
yeah. from a bigger landmass and had to go <laughs> among several other islands on the way. That's really interesting. So yeah, getting into the dodo's diet and habitat. Again, it lived on Mauritius, an island nation east of Madagascar, about 500 miles east. Dodos lived in the woods in drier coastal areas. Mauritius Island had a volcanic origin. It's less than 10 million years old. There's not really any mammalian herbivores on the island, so adult dodos didn't really have any natural predators. There are some dodo fossils that have been found in caves in highland areas that were once mountains. Dodos may have eaten fruit, seeds, nuts, bulbs, and roots, as well as crabs and shellfish. And they use gizzard stones to help digest food, gastroliths. They could eat a lot of things, since they probably ate a lot of different foods on their long sea journeys, and some of them made it as far away as Japan and Europe and India. Meaning they were fed a lot of things by sailors? Yeah, whatever, whatever they had on the boat. Their diets probably changed depending on the season. Other now-extinct birds that lived alongside the dodo include the flightless red rail, the broad-billed parrot, the mascarine gray parakeet, the Mauritius blue pigeon, the Mauritius owl, the masquerine coot, the Mauritian shell duck, the Mauritian duck, and the Mauritius night heron. Jeez, that's a lot of Mauritius birds that went extinct. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was the pigs. <laughs> I think it was probably the cats. I didn't, I don't know. I only researched about the dodo. Other now extinct animals that lived alongside the dodo include the saddleback Mauritius giant tortoise. The Dome Mauritius giant tortoise, the Mauritius giant skink, and the Round Island burrowing boa. So it wasn't just birds going extinct. Yeah, a lot of animals went extinct. And a couple tortoises. Really quick about the dodo brain and histology. A 2016 study by Maria Leon Gold and others CT scanned the skulls of dodos and eight close relatives and built virtual brain endocasts. And they found the dodo had a normal size brain for its body size, and the brain to body size ratio was similar to modern pigeons. So dodos were probably similar in intelligence to pigeons. They also had a large olfactory bulb, so they probably had a good sense of smell. In 2017, D. Angst and others published on the bone histology of the dodo, and they found different stages of growth and maturity, and the youngest ones that they studied were late-stage juveniles. They found dodos had rapid growth rates until they reached sexual maturity. Medullary bone has also been found in two specimens, so it's likely they were female. They found the histology of the dodo is similar to modern birds, and histological evidence of molting shows that after summer, adults that had just bred molted. So that is the study where they proposed the dodo bred around August and chicks grew quickly before summer in the southern hemisphere or cyclone season. And that's the end of our dinosaur of the day about the dodo. But I do have a fun fact, which also involves dodos. <laughs> <laughs> we need more dodo content. <laughs> April Fools. This is about dodos in the media. So in 2021, Alexandra A.E. Vandergreer and others wrote a paper on the changing face of the dodo from 1600 to 2014. And they looked at 179 images of dodos. Dodos have appeared in book illustrations, cinema, logos, and more. They're a very iconic bird, even though we often think of them as ugly or 
fat or clumsy. <laughs> now, in cartoons, animations, and logos, the dodo tends to have very hooked, bulging beaks that are very exaggerated. Quote, in line with the long-held but incorrect popular belief that it was a clumsy, tragic bird destined for extinction. End quote. The dodo became more popular, and maybe this was good, maybe it was bad for the dodo's image, it became more popular from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Before Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which came out in 1865, dodos were depicted more accurately. But Lewis Carroll may have included the dodo in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland because he identified with it and adopted the name as a nickname for himself because of his stammer. He accidentally introduced himself as Dodo Dodgson, his legal surname. Also, he and the girl who was the inspiration for Alice, Alice Liddell, had liked visiting the Oxford Museum to see the dodo fossils. Oh, Lewis Carroll. Yeah, that's a different story. Now, there's two reasons why dodo depictions became so cartoonish. There's a lot of absurdist characters in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and then there's Owen and Broderbs' 1866 monograph that depicted the dodo as stupid and lazy and tragic and not fit to survive. But as it turns out, dodos were survivors on a volcanic island. They weren't that fat. Their downy plumage was from molting, and they were probably as intelligent as other pigeon species. I mean, pigeons aren't really known for being super intelligent. A lot of people make fun of pigeons for being really dumb, too. Yes. But I do think people depict dodos as even more unintelligent than yeah. pigeons. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> now, there weren't that many dodo images between 1650 and 1750, and that led to a lack of interest in them. and didn't pick up again, really, until 1865. The dodo, though, it's used on mascots, and it's on the coat of arms of Mauritius. In 2009, a 17th century Dutch illustration of a dodo was auctioned and sold for 44,450 pounds, and it was only expected to sell for 6,000 pounds. It was this previously unpublished and unknown if it was based on a specimen or a previous image, and also the artist isn't known. But it's from the 1600s, so it could be based on a real dodo since yeah. they were around that whole time. That's true. There was also a composite dodo skeleton that went to auction in 2016. So it seems like interest in the dodo is picking up again. <laughs> Comes in waves every couple hundred years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. If you want to see a transcript of all of this dodo information... You can get it on our website, inodino.com. Thanks again, and until next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.